0: If you are visiting with us, it's our typical pattern here, just so you are aware, at FAC to uh, on Sunday mornings to open up a portion of the Bible every single week and read it uh, together and study it together in order to understand what God is telling us. Um, we believe that there is a real God of the universe, and um, he desires for us to know him to know who he is and to know what he has done throughout history. And the primary way that he reveals himself to us, the primary way that we can know God is through his word, through what he has to say uh, about himself. Um, We believe that the words on these pages aren't just mere words, but they're God's words. Uh, that that God is telling us who he is. Uh, And so once again, the primary way that we can know God if you're searching for God is to just listen to what he says about himself. And so every Sunday, we don't preach um, necessarily about the Bible, we preach from the Bible. And uh, we let the words on the page that we believe to be God's words dictate what we learn about God and and what we learn about us and what we learn about uh, our relationship with uh, God. Um, One of the greatest evidences of God's inspiration of these words and his authorship of these words is Isaiah 53. Uh, it's just an amazing, amazing portion of scripture. As I mentioned, the, the chapter, it's written out like a song, like a, like a poem. Um, and it goes into great detail about the life of Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection. But what may surprise many is that these words that we'll read were written 700 years Uh, before Jesus ever even was born into the world. Um, It's quite remarkable to think about the great detail in this chapter. Uh, We've taken three works to work through the chapter. Um, And so if you're jumping in right now, I'd strongly encourage you to just go back and listen to the prior sermons. You can actually find those on our website, uh, facerie.org. As you listen to those, it'll give you a much fuller context. Uh, we'll, We'll try and catch you up a little bit Um, to to speed this morning, Um, but I would encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, Once again, this chapter is written like a poem or a song. And in this poem, we are introduced to this individual, this character named the servant of God. Um, And from earlier chapters in Isaiah, we know that the servant of God is meant to be this representation of God. The servant of God has one mission. He has been tasked to reveal who God is, and what God has done throughout history. And um, w- while the servant of God isn't named here in the book of Isaiah, we, we know from future New Testament writers uh, that they identify the servant of God as none other than Jesus. And, and so what is said about the servant of God in this chapter that we'll look at um, can actually be said of, of Jesus. Uh, at the beginning of the poem, we're told that the servant of God is a champion, a victor who who has won. He's been exalted onto a platform and glorified. Uh, He's been placed, put in this place of prominence and praised. But as we work through the poem, um, we've seen something strange in that the man described doesn't look like a champion, um, but instead the the portrait painted of this servant of God is is that of an insignificant uh, and unimpressive lowlife who was rejected and despised by mankind um, to to the point where they actually put the servant of God to death. And that's where we left off on Friday, this past Friday, Good Friday, in this passage with the servant of God uh, in the grave. And the glaring question at hand from verses 7 through 9, which is what we looked at on, on Friday, is if this man, is the true representation of God who is supposed to declare to the nations what God has done in the world. How is this possible now that he's in the grave? And so let's turn to God's word and answer that question this morning. Um, I I decided this morning, um, instead of reading just the text that we'll study, I'd like to just read through the whole poem. Um, that we've been working through. And when I say that, I decided that this morning. I decided it about two seconds ago. Um, I think it would be good to just retrace where we've been. Uh, but once again, our time will be devoted to the last three verses. But let's start back in a verse fi- uh, chapter 52, verse 13, um, just a page prior uh, in some of your Bibles. I don't have these words up on the screen. I do apologize because I just did decide to do this. Um, so bear with me. Follow along. And uh, we'll once again start in verse 13, chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And this is where we pick up this morning. These words are up on the screen if you're following along. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Would you pray with me as we begin our time? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have not left us without hope and without help that you have come to our side and our aid and provided all the guidance necessary in your word. I pray, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes to you and mold our hearts to your liking. We thank you for Christ's righteousness that has made us righteous. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. My family really enjoys uh, watching musicals. Uh, In fact, most of the music that we listen to are songs from movies. And um, a few years back, I particularly grew interested and quite hooked, if you will, on the musical Hamilton. Um, if, If you're unfamiliar with the play, it tells the story of the American founding father, Alexander Hamilton, And throughout the entire musical, you hear this motif, this concept of legacy. There is this distinct thread that you can trace from the beginning all the way to the end about Hamilton's unquenchable desire to build a better future and leave a legacy for future subsequent generations. He, he is presented as one who is obsessed with his work, one who is never satisfied. And when you get to the end of the, the musical, if you know your history, uh, Alexander Hamilton dies at the hands of his political rival, Aaron Burr, uh, through a, uh, from a gun duel. And at that point, the viewer is left wondering what is going to happen with Alexander Hamilton's legacy. Uh, That that question is posed in the final song, which is appropriately called Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story? And and that entire song, the musical finishes um, with how Hamilton's wife, Eliza, went on to tell his story for 50 years after his death um, in his stead. His uh, legacy, if you will, continued on because of her work, uh, because she was willing to tell his story, Uh, generational legacy. Uh, Here in Isaiah 53, there is this similar flavor of generational legacy. Uh, Let's think through the passage together, starting in verse 10. Um, Once again, we we pick up in verse 10, right where we left off on Good Friday with the servant of God in the grave. And verse 10 reiterates what we've already explored. Uh, Verse 10 is merely a recap, a summary of why the servant had to die. Uh, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That last part, it's a callback to verses four through six that we read this morning where it was explained how Jesus carried our sin, that he bore our sin. He lifted up our grief. He lifted up our sorrow. He lifted up our transgression. He lifted up our iniquity. He lifted up our guilt and he placed it on his own shoulders, on himself. And as a result, this crushed him. This crushed the servant to death. But the death served as an offering, a guilt offering to God. We explored how the servant was a substitute, that he died in our place. And we remember that sin leads to death, and Jesus took our place as sinners and gave himself willingly as an offering for our guilt. And what we find here in verse 10 is that this wasn't some unfortunate event that came out of nowhere and out of pure happenstance, but rather this was an orchestrated part of God's plan to redeem humanity ever since the beginning of, uh, of the fall, since before the fall or at the fall, to, to bring us back into the presence of God, to bring us back into the fold. Right? Verse 10 states it clearly that this was God's will. This was God's desire to crush him. Now, now I hope this doesn't give you a picture of a vengeful God because it's actually designed to give us a picture of a loving God who, who was willing to pardon us and enact his discipline on his servant who was willing to go to the grave in our place, even though that was rightfully our place. You see, God being perfect has to discipline sin. He he can't tolerate sin. And if he did, it, it would make him a lousy God. It would make him a lousy God of injustice. It would be like a jury convicting someone of a serious crime, declaring them guilty. And then the judge coming out and saying, even though you are guilty of what you did, even though you committed this horrific crime, I am not going to sentence you. I'm going to let you go free. That's just wrong, and we know that it's wrong, and we know that this is a great injustice if that were to ever happen. And it would be the same if God didn't discipline sin. But in his gracious lovingness, while he has to punish sin, he is the one who offers his son, Jesus, who is willing to take that place, to take the punishment in our place. That's gracious. That's loving. And it resulted in Jesus' death on the cross. And so in Isaiah 53, the servant is dead and he is in the grave by verse nine now for normal people the grave is the end of the line end of story it doesn't continue on from there our story would end right there in verse 9 uh, there is no more work to be done after that after one dies but what we find in verse 10 is is that this is not the end of the servant's story it continues on into verse 10 after god crushes him after god Put him to grief after he has made an offering for our guilt, after the servant is dead and in the grave, all of a sudden, without any explanation in the poem, the servant is alive again. And not only is he alive, he's active. He's he's doing things. He's governing, right? Verse 10 says, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That The servant is able to see because he's alive. Dead people don't see things. They can't see things. It's impossible for them to see things. But this servant who is dead is now seeing things. He's alive. In that phrase, prolong his days, it's always used in angel literature to, to describe the extension of a physical earthly life. He's alive. And this is absolutely a prophecy proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that death is not the end of the story for the servant of God. Once again, dead people don't see, and dead people certainly don't see their offspring. which which brings us back to this theme of generational legacy that I had introduced earlier. Uh, In in fact, this idea of generational legacy is alluded to back in verse eight when it talks about how the servant is cut off from the land of the, the living. The whole concern of verse eight is that the servant was left without descendants. He was left without offspring. He was left without legacy. He was left without those who would declare who he is and what he has done. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? That's what verse 8 is asking. And at the time in verse 8, it's assumed that the answer to that question in regards to the servant was nobody. There's nobody left. But now all of a sudden in verse 10, he has offspring. He he sees his children. Not only does he have offspring, but he sees his offspring. It's a great blessing, is it not, to see your offspring? One of the greatest privileges and blessings of my own life is to witness my own children grow up in front of my very own eyes. I have four young children all of them 10 years or younger. And and I hope one day to see my children's children. And and I suppose there's a chance that I will see my great-grandchildren. But if we're honest, I most likely will not see my offspring beyond that because I will be dead. However, the servant sees all his children. And if he sees all of his children, in order to see all of his children, he must be alive. And he must be alive for a very, very long time. Even to this day, Jesus is bearing spiritual children, many who will come into his family this very Easter Sunday. And Jesus is alive to see them. And he sees them. And not only in verse Uh, 11, we we come to find not only that the servant has children, that he sees his children, but how they came to be his children. Uh, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This language should remind us of the anguish of, of actually birth pangs is what it's alluding to, the act of giving birth, right? If you've ever experienced childbirth, or witnessed childbirth, you you know that it is not what I would uh, define as a walk in the park. Uh, This initially isn't a pleasant experience because there's pain involved. There's struggle. There's anguish. But as soon as a child is born and handed over to the care of the mother, the mother lays her eyes on this precious little one, and she sees, and she's satisfied. In that precious moment, the pain and the struggle and the anguish is quickly forgotten. You experienced it, but you've forgotten it. Was it an enjoyable experience? Certainly not. But was it worth it? Absolutely. The same is true of Jesus. The anguish of the cross, although crippling, was the very avenue, the channel that brought forth his children to life, spiritual life. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It's a great satisfaction, a great pleasure, which is why he was willing to endure the cross to begin with. All that it cost Jesus to bring people into his family as children was not too much of a cost. And so we see that it's through Jesus' death that he brings life to his children. In verse 11, Uh, Goes on to explain in more theological terms what's happening, what was accomplished in the servant's death and and subsequent resurrection. It says that by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, now a couple things to point out here It's, it's stated here that the servant is the righteous one, he's righteous. Righteousness in Scripture its basically an upright position before God. It's being able to stand before God. It's be, being able to have a right relationship with God. It's, it's being able to be in God's presence. And a lot of people have some pretty strange ideas about how to have a right relationship with God. Many say, if I attend church regularly or if I pray enough, or if I'm good enough, or or if I say a simple prayer with the right combination of words as if I'm trying to break a code, then I can stand upright before God. If at some point in my life I walk down in front at the invitation of of, of somebody calling me to come down to, to an altar, then by doing that I have an upright relationship with God. The problem is we've taken way too many liberties from what God has actually said on the matter. In order to know what it takes to be righteous in the eyes of God, we need to let God speak for himself. And he says, according to his word, that to stand upright before a perfect God, if you are to be able to be present in the midst of a perfect God, you need to be perfect like him. Righteousness, according to God, is perfection. It is sinlessness. And so it's important to understand that here in Isaiah 53, the servant of God is the one who is righteous. God's the one actually talking here. The the poem shifts where it's speaking from the perspective of God. And he says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. God is affirming the perfection of his servant. And what does the servant do as a result? He makes many to be accounted righteous. And so the righteous one is the servant But the many weren't righteous because they need to be accounted righteous. They weren't perfect, but this servant takes them and makes many to be accounted righteous. What what does this language sound like? To to, to me, this language, the the account, uh, to, to account someone or something leads me to think of a ledger, right? A log, if you will, of insurmountable debt. But to make many to be accounted righteous is to clear the debt, to clear the ledger. The debt has been accounted for not by us, but by Jesus. He's the one that accounts me righteous. You no longer owe anything, right? Someone else has given you the funds, the funds to cover a debt that you could never repay. Uh, Once again, in in the verse, the many aren't righteous. They are merely accounted righteous. They are counted. They are considered as righteous. They are given righteousness. And specifically, they are given the servant's righteousness. The, The many are accounted righteous because the servant bared their iniquities. He's the one that took the debt. And so let me lay it out very plainly and clearly if you're having trouble understanding. There is a great transaction, a great exchange that happens at the death and resurrection of Jesus. We give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Jesus took our place in the eyes of God as a sinner bearing sin bearing the penalty of sin so that we could take Jesus' place in the eyes of God, bearing perfection. Our debt is credited to Christ and his death and resurrection. Through his death and resurrection, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. His death and resurrection provided a way for people to be righteous, for people to be put in a right relationship with God and given life. In light of verse 11, in light of Jesus' own righteousness in his life, if your mindset here this morning is that I just need to somehow be morally good enough to find acceptance from God, the truth of the matter is that you can't, it's impossible. It's impossible to meet God's holy, perfect standard. It's impossible to be good enough. You cannot secure righteousness unless it is given to you by the only one who has it, Jesus. And the glorious news is that Jesus offers it freely to anyone who would request it with no strings attached. And it's through the giving of his righteousness that people become his children, his offspring. When he doles out his righteousness, what is he doing other than just reproducing himself? He is reproducing his righteousness in others. What is offspring but a reproduction of yourself in some way. When you bear children, you are making in some fashion a copy of yourself. You are giving them a piece of yourself, quite literally. My children are little mini-me's. They are copies because I have given them a piece of me biologically, and Jesus has spiritually given us himself and has duplicated himself in us, which is why we can stand before God, because the seed that Jesus has reproduced in his children is one of righteousness. And we see that this is a dramatic shift in many people's understanding of God. You see, Jesus did not come to tell people what God requires of us. He came to do what God requires on our behalf. And then he offers that to us. I've heard a pastor say that if you ever come, you know, that day comes where you come face to face with God and you're asked that, that, that typical question of, of what, what should, if God were to offer you to come into heaven and say, what, why should I let you into heaven? The pastor explains that as soon as you start the sentence with I, you're starting off on the wrong foot because it's Christ. It's Jesus. God, I am riding on the coattails of Christ into heaven because I know I can't. So I put my trust in him. It's not about, I say this all the time, it's not about what we need to do to get to God, but what God has done and accomplished to get to us. And there is a great victory in what God has done through his servant Jesus. That's the final picture that we get in verse 12. The poem ends just how it began as we read with a note of triumph. Jesus has been exalted. He is being praised. He is a champion. And we are the spoils of of victory. God gives Jesus his very own son, his servant. He gives him all of those who have been made righteous. We we, we are given as a treasure under Jesus' care and under Jesus' governance. And Jesus reigns as a living champion, the servant is victorious over death, he is alive. And just as death was not the end for Jesus, death is not the end for those who are his children under his provisional care who have received his righteousness. You see, Jesus rose from the grave to prove his authority and victory over death itself. And he has promised that all of his children will also be resurrected to life by the same power that brought him back to life. That is our great hope. And the foundation of such glorious hope is the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important that he's alive because of the objective witnessed fact that Jesus overcame Death. Right? Anybody from a religious background or religious teaching can tell you and claim that their teaching leads to life after death. But Jesus is the only one in the history of the world who backed up his claims of life after death by actually doing it and showing it to us through many eyewitnesses in the first century. Right, I could sit here and claim a lot of things about myself. I could sit here and tell you that I could bench press 400 pounds. And I could sell you on that. But my words are meaningless until I get on the bench and lift 400 pounds. And if I were to try, you would come to the conclusion very quickly that Mike is a liar. He can't do what he said he could do. You see, we believe Jesus' claims and teachings not out of ignorant bliss, not out of an empty hope, but in that he showed us his authority over life and death itself as God. If you were to continue to uh, read through the end of Isaiah, the book concludes describing two ways that people will respond to the servant. This is, you will fall in one of these two categories. You can't get around it. You will respond to the servant. Isaiah explains that some respond with humility and, and they accept what God's servant did on their behalf. And they are called servants and they are called the seed, if you will, the offspring. But there are others, Isaiah explains, who are simply called the wicked, who, who reject in proudness the servant and they reject those who follow him. You will be one of those two people. What we find, however, is that those who humbly submitted themselves to the servant are the ones who inherit God's kingdom. They are the ones brought to life after death. And the ones who rejected the servant are banned from the kingdom of life. They only experience death after death. And so the choice is before you this morning. Every person must consider the question, what do I do with Jesus? What do I make of Jesus? Please know that we here at FAC are here to help you navigate that question and the many questions that accompany it. And and while our short time is just about finished today, I hope that enough has been said this morning that would prompt you to engage further with such questions. Please do not be shy. Please do not be hesitant. Let us as a church come alongside you as you consider some questions. Consider this as an open invitation to first and foremost put your trust in Jesus for your own salvation this very morning. And if you're not quite ready for that, if you have more questions, consider this an open invitation to engage with us as a church to learn more about such claims. And it would be the greatest blessing in the world if you would let us in and afford us the opportunity to help you navigate such difficult questions. It's an invitation that's open to you. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness, and we praise you that there is life in the name of Christ. Lord, that we don't have to wonder um, what comes next, uh, because you've told us. And I understand, Lord, that there are many people that that are worried and anxious about what will happen after we die. Um, There is a little bit of a haze, Lord, that's over our eyes. We don't have all the answers, Lord, but we have the most important answer, and we know that you have all the answers. And so we trust you, Lord, because you have demonstrated that you are one who is trustworthy uh, from histories and generations gone by. I pray this morning, Lord, that if there would be even just one in this room who has not put their trust in Jesus, that this morning would be it uh, and that they would begin walking in life with Christ. And it's in your holy name I pray. Amen.